I am joined by Joseph Wang of FedGuide.com and Peter Stella, curator of the Central Bank Archaeology and the former head of the Central Banking Division of the International Monetary Fund. Gentlemen, welcome to Forward Guidance. Thank you, Jack. Thanks so much for having us, Jack. And guys, Peter Stella, for you guys who don't know, is one of the experts and people that I respect and have followed for many years. He is a top-notch economist and central banker. So you guys want to hear what he says. He has some really, really good insights on um, what determines inflation and how central bank balance sheets work. Yes. So Peter, later on in our conversation, I want to get into the rather stunning losses that the Federal Reserve has, unrealized losses on, on the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. But first to start off, Take us back to when you you first got out of college, you started working at the IMF. I understand you had a glimpse into the relationship between fiscal and monetary policy that not a lot of people get. So take us back to the 1980s and, and what you were doing then. Sure. So I came out of Stanford with a PhD in economics. I did my dissertation on credibility of basically monetary policy. And I went to the IMF and particularly I wound up being in a division called the Special Fiscal Studies Division. And so I was traveling to countries and working on, you know, fund-related programs. And really the fiscal issue was was really the primary issue. The monetary was, you know, like the, the tip of the, de- the dog's uh, tail. So what really mattered was the fiscal and how it would be financed in terms of inflation dynamics and things like that. I'd seen this in many countries, and then I wound up being assigned to Argentina in in the 1988-89 period. Uh, So I was in Argentina when inflation was 195.5% in one month. That's not the annualized rate. That's the monthly rate. Uh, You would go into a supermarket, and this was 1989. There were no prices anywhere. And my Spanish wasn't that great. I was a little nervous, like, what's going on? So I asked people, and they said, well, people who worked in the store, they said, well, we don't know the prices. We don't know the prices until you check out, you know, because the, the headquarters of the supermarket chain sends down a database, sorry, a data file, updating the prices every, you know, four or five hours or something like that. So, um, it, and, and I think, Certainly, well, I think most people would agree, at least by now, that Argentina's problems are really fiscal problems, not not, not that the central bankers don't know sort of what they should be doing, but it's simply out, outside of their control to deal with those uh, problems. So I wound up doing a lot of work on, on central bank uh, balance sheets back at that time uh, in the 80s. Uh, I wrote a paper later on called Do Central Banks Need Capital, which was a bit provocative and for anyone and for the IMF was probably a, a bit provocative. Uh, but it was looking at kind of the, the fiscal dimensions of the central bank balance sheet. Uh, also a lot of work on quasi-fiscal operations of central banks. And believe it or not, uh, sort of 30 years later, uh, the IMF, and I've been involved now, retired for quite a while, but involved in a working paper that will come out very soon on central banks' quasi-fiscal operations during COVID. So that's that's um, kind of a, a bit of my fiscal monetary interactions background, not from a theoretical standpoint, from, from just you know having to confront this over, over time. So people often have this idea that you know, inflation is largely a monetary phenomenon. Like in the 1980s, we had 
monetarists like Milton Friedman talk about inflation is mostly monetary. And even at one point in time, I believe the Fed tried to change their way of implementing monetary policy to target quantities of, of money. And that, that wasn't very effective. And so they, they kind of moved away from that. And even as recently as the great financial crisis, we've heard people, uh, analysts and economists as well, uh, who have this, uh, I guess, monetarist view of the world, think, seeing that quantitative easing was increasing the money supplies, uh, quote unquote, expecting imminent hyperinflation, gold going to the moon and so forth. And none of that ever happened. And even today, as we see, uh, as the money supply is shrinking, uh, we see people pointing that out, trying to draw some conclusions as to the economy. But it seems like this quantity theory of money has been super effective in, in understanding uh, the price level and understanding inflation. And so your other viewpoint that it's how a fiscal theory of the price level seems to make more sense, especially since, you know, what we see right now, large inflation has been followed by very large fiscal uh, spending by, by not just the U.S. government, by, but by most advanced economy governments as well. So do, do you think that is probably, how would you reconcile this um, fiscal theory along with the more, I guess, common sense-like view that it's just increasing money, then you would have inflation? That's a fantastic question, Joseph. Uh, Peter, I want you to answer it, but I just want to fly for our audience that fiscal policy is the government. So when they spend more money than they take in, they run a deficit. When they uh, do the opposite, it's, it's called surplus. The U.S. has run a deficit for many years. And then monetary policy is what the Federal Reserve does. So uh, thank, thank you for that great question. Uh, uh, Joseph, Peter, what do you have to say? Yeah, thanks for that intervention, Jack, because it's going to change a bit the way I answer the question. So if you take a look at some of, let's say, one of Milton Friedman's more popular writings, right, made for the general public, it's called uh, Money Mischief. Almost every time that Friedman talks about money printing, he says, it's the government that prints money. And I, I don't think that's an accident. I don't think that's a mistake. I believe you can reconcile sort of the quantity theory of money approach with the fiscal theory of the price level by saying, well, Friedman was talking in a certain, you know, in the 50s and 60s, talking in a certain world of, say, fixed exchange rates, where domestic bond markets weren't really that developed. And he, he believed, I think, that central banks were merely a kind of a mirage. They were a, a curtain that behind the curtain, the government was, was trying to finance deficits in a very uh, seemingly costless way, politically costless way by uh, printing money, which means getting the central bank to, to finance it with, with money printing. I've also looked at, at Keynes, one of the Keynes, fam my favorite book, this is called Tracked on Monetary Reform. And again, almost everywhere he talks about money printing, it is the government is printing the money. It's, it's sort of the central bank plays no role in this. The central bank is maybe portrayed sometimes as a valiantly trying to stop the government from forcing it to print money. But basically the ultimate driver is the, uh, is the government. So of course, again, that would be a model where we don't have an independent, what we think of as an independent central bank. So I would say moving now to, to, to today, and we've seen the, mon the quantity theory break down empirically. So th the question is, was it wrong or did something change? And, and I would say the fiscal theory is basically saying, well, 
it's still, it's still, right? This is not a new idea. It's still the government that's the driving force. But now the government can finance itself, not only in the advanced countries, but in many emerging markets now, with domestic debt issuance in their own currency. So what, what does that mean? It means basically, if you will, the government doesn't, the government has a larger base of liabilities on which it can default through inflation. So in other words, the monetary base in a country like the US before the balance sheet expansion might have been 5% of GDP, 10% of GDP. Currency is a hard, is a big fraction of GDP in the US because it's used abroad, but let's say 5% of GDP for a standard country. Now, so to, to, get a, to get a deflation, sort of get real revenue from that, you have to have a pretty high rate of inflation. But if you have a long-term government debt, very large bond market like the US, maybe 100% of GDP, then you only need 5% inflation, let's call it surprise inflation, to generate 5% of GDP, uh, let's say in revenue over time. So what, what the fiscal theory of the price level, my mind is simply saying that quantity theory of money is a special case of the fiscal theory of the price level. The special case where in your model or in your economy, the only way the government can finance its deficits is through base money issuance. So the fiscal theory is basically saying, well, uh, it doesn't really, the, the mix between money and bonds doesn't really matter. It's the sum of the government's uh, money and bonds out there. And now, now there's probably lead into two other topics today because now uh, countries are paying interest on the monetary base and, and that, that can lead to an alteration again of the way you think of, of monetary policy. I think Peter Peter's explanation, whereas a government is trying to finance in itself and has different liabilities to choose, it can either print money or issue bonds I think that's a really, really good way of understanding why, um, you know, in the great financial crisis, when the Fed was enlarging its balance sheet, we actually didn't see tremendous inflation because it was more about changing the composition of the government's liabilities rather than actually creating new liabilities. So from from Peter's, from Peter's what Peter has suggested is that, you know, you're, you're instead of the government, instead of financing itself with bonds, it was basically just financing itself by printing money. So the overall amount of money, quote unquote, wasn't changing, but more about the composition, because in a sense, government bonds are a type of money. Uh, would that be a good, I guess, synthesis of what what happened and how this theory would be applied to the past, I guess, 10 years? I think the validity of the quantity theory came from looking at the most narrow form of money, which is the monetary base, which is a direct liability of the state, either you know, through the central bank or directly by the government. Now, the monetarists talked about larger aggregates, M1, M2, which were liabilities also of the banking system. So how do, how do you reconcile my view and, and their view? Well, there were these things called the money multiplier, money velocity that kind of, if you dig into it deeply, established a, sta a let's say stable ratios between these larger aggregates and the smaller aggregates. 
So that's that's how you kind of square the circle. So when I'm concentrating on the monetary finance, I'm I'm not talking about the you know growth in money caused by banks, right? That 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 has nothing. That's between the private sector. Um, so I was talking about the monetary base. And so now as we're moving into this, uh, you know, the the newer world where you say, okay, um, it, it doesn't really matter whether the government finances deficits with with these particular type of liabilities, monetary liabilities, or uh, you know, treasury bills, which are very close to money <laughs> that pays interest rates or or 30-year bonds. But what it what it enables the government to do, and I think this is important for understanding why certain countries, you know, have problems with inflation and certain countries don't. And that is if if you have a large stock of nominal debt outstanding, coming back to what I said earlier, you don't need as much inflation to reduce the uh, the liabilities of the state. So the fiscal theory of price level is a bit like sometimes they call it a bond pricing equation. So the value of the government's debt is equal to the present discounted value of all the surpluses it will generate in the future to pay off the debt. So basically, instead of having money divided by the price level, like the real value of the liabilities of the government, you have a much bigger aggregate, which would be money, money and bonds uh, as in, in that equation, let's call it as opposed to uh, this, the typical quantity theory equation. And I think there's a um, framework from, from Stephanie Kelton that will is helpful for me and hopefully helpful for some audience members to understand this, that if the government is running a budget deficit, they're spending more money than they take in in taxes, they are printing money. Uh, and to print money, the old-fashioned style would be to print you know green dollars, which would be just issuing more currency that can be spent immediately. But the, the way that the U.S. government is, is set up is the government has to fund that by issuing, instead of green dollars, yellow dollars, which are treasury bills, treasury bills, treasury notes, treasury bonds, all the way out from you know one month or a few days to, to 30 years. And I guess, the, Peter, the, the theory is that that is less inflationary if there's a duration component of the, of the money printing. And do I have that right? And do you, do you agree with that? Do, do your travels to Argentina and all the countries you worked in for, for the IMF does, does that corroborate or challenge that statement? So I think the first part is, is correct in some sense. But w- what I would say is uh, there's just such a larger demand for, let's say, securities than there is for money, uh, certainly in, in any advanced country, right? So before people don't realize this, um, but before the balance sheet expansion, so if we take the Fed's balance sheet in 2008, the amount of currency in circulation was about $800 billion. Maybe the amount, the amount of, of, of reserves, bank reserves, people probably have trouble believing this, but it was $20 billion. And so people kind of think, oh, you know, the Fed has been printing money and so on. It, it, it's not the way to look at it. The way to look at it is basically anyone who wanted physical U.S. dollars got them. I mean, there was no dropping them from helicopters. Basically, you had to pay for them. So the supply of currency was demand determined. And actually, the supply of reserves was also demand determined by by the banking system. And it's just a fact the banking system was able to conduct its business with a very low level of reserves. Um, So 
let's look at it that way. So there was a demand for money. And then there was a demand for, if you want to call it yellow money, uh, treasury, treasury bonds. Okay, how did that get into the market? Yes, that's more that the supply of bonds is determined by the government, right? The financing needs. So in a sense, it's, it's about, it's sort of the opposite of the way that people tend to think of it. So the supply of money before the global financial crisis, uh, in, our, in other words, central bank money was determined by how much people wanted. If you wanted it, you got it. If you didn't want it, you didn't get it. Uh, but the supply of bonds was driven by the needs of the treasury to issue, to finance new deficits and to roll over the old bonds. So over time, that, that supply grew, grew, grew. Um, and there's a demand at the auction price, right? It's a, it's a, the government has to sell that debt and it's bought at, at the market price. So basically what I'm saying is over time, countries have developed the ability to finance themselves through this debt issuance. They had to pay a price for it because they had to pay the going market rate. But once you've done that, okay, so once you've done that, and I can cite countries in my lifetime, right, who have gone from absolutely no domestic debt market. In other words, I, I think what Stephanie is talking about, issuing debt in your own currency, and that's what I'm, I'm talking about. So countries like Chile, Peru, Mexico, Israel. If you looked in the 1980s when I was traveling to Argentina, there was no domestic debt market. We used to call this, or the market used to call this, original sin. They could not issue debt in their own currency because they were always defaulting. Well, if you look around now, Peru, Mexico, Brazil, Chile, Israel, they all have quite significant domestic debt markets. It's really remarkable. It took them 20 or 30 years to do with that. But they've kind of, you know, they haven't reached, they, they haven't reached where the U.S. has reached. But they, they've really made a significant uh, achievement. And so in my mind, the, the remarkable thing in, in the macro sense of COVID is COVID was a classic, in my mind, classic fiscal shock. It was a real shock, a fiscal shock, right? So everybody knows governments have to spend a lot more money than we thought two months before, huge amounts. What happened in these countries, all these countries that had developed domestic debt markets? Did you see a jumps in inflation? Did you see people panicking and the exchange rate falling? No, no. In fact, those countries were able to issue debt in the middle of the COVID crisis. Israel issued a hundred year bond during COVID. Uh, it might've been dollar denominated. It might've been in international markets. But the fact is, it's quite amazing. If you think what would have happened in my mind, what would have happened in 1985 if COVID had happened? All of the countries that I cited, immediately people would have known they're not going to get any foreign financing when it's a crisis. And there's only one way that can finance expenditures to print money. So you would have seen inflation pick up immediately. And we didn't see that in those countries. And I think that's remarkable. Now, Argentina is the exception. And I would say, because it really hasn't developed that domestic debt market. Um, and, and a lot hasn't changed since I was there uh, 30, 30 years ago. So coming back to the, your, your question. So what, what the, the really important thing that I, I think of is two things. One is 
the kind of fundamental demand for securities as the lubrication of what makes financial markets work. Uh, and it's not only the government debt market, but private corporate markets feed on benchmarks established by the sovereign. So that basically expands tremendously the cumulative deficits that you can finance without inflation. Okay, because you're not relying just on issuing that green type money where there's a very limited demand for that kind of product. Uh, the other, the other there, there's a much larger demand. And the second thing that I think is very important in terms of you know, crisis management is because you have such, you have a, like I said, you have a big stock of, much larger stock of debt that you can, I'm, I'm putting my you know, quotation marks up, you can default on with inflation. Right. Mm -hmm. So for any given size shock, people can say, oh, you know, the, the government's going to have to issue more debt and there's going to be inflation. OK, but the amount of inflation you need to sort of make things square is much, much lower if you have that. Uh, I call it the shock absorber or technology to kind of spread out the, the losses um, on the on the uh, financial system. Uh, Obviously, we're seeing in the U.S. some of the banks are making losses on this surprise uh, increase in uh, inflation and the fall in the market value of government debt. But that's that that's kind of a small symptom of what I'm talking about. Is uh, you know that that that's the flip side of a coin. Somebody's somebody's going to be surprised and and take some losses either through inflation or or falling prices of bonds. Just to summarize, so. In the past, when governments would finance their deficit by issuing money, well, the demand for money is not necessarily there. People, if there's not a lot of demand for money, people will get rid of their money and buy stuff, and that's inflationary. But if they're issuing bonds instead, there's more demand for bonds because of the collateral value that you mentioned, but probably because they pay a little bit of interest as well. So maybe that's a little bit less inflationary than, than issuing just um, greenbacks, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, if you look at the tax theory, uh, you know, you multiply the tax rate times the base of the tax and you have a much, much larger tax base. So you don't have to raise taxes, the inflation tax by as much to do that. And and as well, um, you know, new new issuance of debt, of course, takes into account people's expectations of, of inflation and so on. So, uh, you know, in, in some sense, the duration, you know, you take a risk, you, you, you take the duration risk and you say, okay, well, uh, you know, I, I, I might be surprised by inflation, but I'm only, I'm only kind of surprised for one year. I, I have a one, one year, my uh, real return is lower than I expected, but then I buy the new debt issuance and I'm, I'm back to the, uh, uh, I'm back to expecting a real return after inflation. So part of what, you know, part of the important part of the central bank in the modern times is to try to keep people from anticipating more inflation than is actually going to arrive. Okay, so basically, uh, you don't you don't want high expectations of inflation because you know the treasury is going to have to roll over its debt at very high rates, and then you'll witness perhaps the real value of that debt going up, which is the 
you know, ex, ex post, you get less inflation than was built into the, into the, uh, uh, into the bond when it was sold, the coupon. I don't know Earlier. if this is a good place to drop my, my big, uh, you know, thought provoking remark, but if, if you look at the real market value of US government debt today or December of 2022, it's actually lower than it was in March of 2020. So the US government has issued about $4.4 trillion worth of debt between since COVID started. But if you take the increase in the GDP deflator, it's about 14%. And the market prices of bonds have fallen. The real market value of US government debt is about $400 billion less than it was in uh, March of 2020. So I, I might suggest that the US already has inflated away all of the debt it issued uh, related to COVID. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> that's very uh, clever too. And I don't have to, you don't have to tell me anything about the money supply or, or anything like that. So the value of the debt is less because of inflation inflated away, but then the nominal value is also less because interest rates are higher. So the value of the debt is, is less, but is that a good thing or a bad thing for the government? Because now the government has to finance itself at higher rates. So it's it's a good thing, uh, you know. What's let's let's say it's a good thing for the taxpayer <laughs> as opposed to the government, so that we can feel that it is actually a good thing. Uh, so basically, this this is basically coming straight out of fiscal theory of the price level. So the fiscal theory of the price level is saying we see an increase in the future value of government deficits from the moment of, of COVID, right? We don't know what it's going to be, but I think the COVID legislation cost led to additional spending of about $7 trillion, more than, more than what was anticipated, you know, before, before COVID. Um, so basically the question is, uh, so the fiscal theory says, to the extent that people do not expect the government to run larger primary surpluses in the future, in other words, surpluses that will be used to pay the uh, debt back, then we'll see the price level jump. Okay. So it's called fiscal theory, the price level, which is a bit theoretical thing. It's like in the model, you would say, oh, COVID happens, the government's going to spend $5 trillion more, the price level will jump such that the market value or the real value of the government's debt will fall by $5 trillion or $7 trillion. Okay. Now, let's say coming back to the real world, it's not going to be that simple because, well, we don't really know whether the government is going to, you know, raise, generate future primary surpluses. I don't think anybody thinks they're going to raise enough that there'll be no inflation, but they might do something in between, right? And and unfortunately, when you're dealing with expectations, you know, we can talk about 20 or 30 years in the future, right? And that then that gets us in the ballpark of will they will the US ever solve the Social Security, Medicare, 
structural imbalance. Okay, where you know we've been, in my lifetime we've been talking about that since uh, one of my professors was advising Ronald Reagan on what to say in his presidential campaign about that. So fiscal theory of price level is saying this is COVID happens, five trillion dollars in government spending, no increase in taxes. This means the price level will jump. You know to 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 bring the value of the debt back to uh, to what we expect the, the primary surpluses to be going in the future. So what what why I say it's a good thing is in a sense, uh, you know we've all, we've as I say we, you know somehow the process seems to be leading to one where we won't really need any increases in the in the primary surplus. We won't really need any tax increases to pay for um, to pay for the debt we issued during COVID because it will be it will have been inflated away. That's that's roughly speaking uh, what what those numbers would suggest. And that, you know, Joseph is surprised. I mean, I was very surprised uh, to to look at these numbers now. Coming back to this distinction between the price level and inflation. So we know that prices are sticky and in particular rents, for example, uh, things that are contracted only usually change prices once a year or something like that. So it, coming back to reality, as opposed to the theory, price, the price level cannot jump. You know, it's just statistically not possible. So we will see inflation come up. You know, continue to increase if it is a if it is a result of this fiscal phenomenon, simply because of the sort of the inertia and the lags that are that are there in, in the uh, inflation. You know, the way inflation is measured. But I would I would also point out that um, when we think about the market value of the government's debt or the market value of any bond, uh, it's important to keep in mind the uh, Bond price, whether it's currently trading above par or below par, when it matures, it will mature at par. So basically, because interest rates have been more or less falling since the 1980s, since Paul Volcker, the market value of the U.S. government bonds is on average been trading above par. In other words, interest rates have been coming down. So people have been making sort of capital gains. That's been going on for a long time. So if you look at March 2020, basically the the ratio between the market value of U.S. government debt and the par value was about 1.08. So it was about 8% above par. And now it's about 8% below par. In other words, we've been surprised that by an increase in interest rates, as you said, Jack, was suddenly interest rates went up. And so the you know, the bond went from 108 to kind of 92 in the two years. But the point is, eventually that 92, the bond trading at 92 will rise to 100 whenever it matures. Okay. So that that market, that, that let's say the gain to the government on the fall in market value will eventually be reversed, as you say, because we'll be issuing bonds at higher interest at par going forward. So it's kind of a one-time gain, and my point is part of the part of the uh, 
part of the reason why the market value is below uh, par is because inflation will continue to pick up. So in other words, roughly speaking, half of the gain to the government so far has been from inflation and half. So it's about 14% increase in the GDP deflator and about 16% fall in the market value of the bonds. But part of that is going to be erased, the market value as those bonds eventually get to par and the government has to issue new debt at higher rates. But inflation will keep going up. So that that will sort of reflect in the end. At some point, we will be able to say, yes, this was the amount of the inflation tax, let's say, that came from uh, the increase that was gen that was required, let's say, after the COVID uh, spending that was not covered by by future taxes or, or cuts in spending. So let's let's presume that going forward, the government will be selling debt, incorporating the correct expectations of inflation. So if nominal interest rates, let's say the 30-year bond will now be being auctioned at 4%, that's sort of expecting the real rate to be 2%, inflation to be 2%. So that that won't be sort of inflationary or deflationary. Uh, what's happened, what the gain is, if you will, is this surprise in inflation. So uh, you could have a surprise deflation, which is costly to the government. In other words, it would have to increase the real surpluses to pay off the debt. So uh, what, what would be inflationary would be if uh, people lost confidence that inflation was going to come back down to 2%. And the government had to sell sell uh, bonds at you know five percent because people expect inflation to be three percent. So that would be a real uh, a problem for the government. In other words, it's if you look at it from a modeling perspective, it's almost as if that means the government would either have to raise taxes or cut spending to pay that inflation premium, the unwarranted inflation premium. Let's call it or it would have to deliver the 3%, it would have to deliver the higher inflation to meet its budget constraint. So that's why you get into countries where, you know, nominal interest rates are very high and it's very difficult to get out of that circle, uh, that, that vicious circle. The government has to issue at very high rates and, uh, you know, it can't generate the revenue to pay it, so it basically has to has to have inflation. You know, coming back to I, I was an intern at the Federal Reserve in 1983, and at that time, uh, Paul Volcker was in, in power, uh, and the U.S. Treasury was issuing debt at I think 12 or 14 percent, which seems you know both of you are young. This must seem incredible to, to think that this was possible. I had a friend in graduate school who had had worked before going to graduate school. He had bought some AT&T bonds and he lived off the interest when he was in graduate school. They were 
something like 18% yielding bonds for, for, for AT&T, which had a monopoly at that time. Uh, so what I, what I said at that time to some people at the Fed, I said, it doesn't make sense if, if, if the government, the Treasury, the central bank believes that we're going to bring inflation down to single digits or to 2%, 3%, why is the, why is the Treasury issuing 30-year bonds at 14%, this will be hugely costly, right? Because unless, unless inflation is 12%, if you're selling at 14, coupon of 14%, uh, and inflation is like comes down to 2%, that's 12% real. That's, that's you know, no, no country can sort of generate uh, enough revenue in the long run to pay off 12% real bond, okay? So it's really about this situation or, you know, my remark is really about this, this surprise element, right? So the surprise fiscal spending associated with the surprise inflation. Um, and, and that's, they, they've kind of, I wouldn't say taken care of each other. Uh, now, if you, I guess the flip side would be if you believe that we should never have inflation ever, then the U.S. should have been raising taxes and, and so on, or shouldn't have spent or shouldn't have spent the money. I, I personally don't believe that would would have been a good idea, but but you could take that view. There, sorry to interrupt. Announcement: Blockworks is hosting an event called Permissionless in September. It's a crypto event. It's in Austin, Texas. We did Permissionless in 2022. It was the biggest and best DeFi event in the world. And this year, Lightning will be striking twice. Historically, our ticket prices have gone up about 10 times from the day the tickets go live to the day before the event. If you're like me and bad at math, that's 900%. So it might be savvy for attendees to consider buying tickets now rather than later. If you're listening to this and you're saying, hey, Jack, I'm not really into this whole crypto thing. I want to hear about the Fed. I want to hear about the dollar, Bretton Woods, three, four, five. I hear you. I'm not telling you to buy a ticket and the interview will resume momentarily. However, if you are into the crypto thing and permissionless is something you might want to attend, what I'm saying is there's no time like the present because tickets will go up and if history is any guide, prices will go up a ton. Anyway, the link is in the description and you can get an additional 10% off by using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. So this surprise and inflation shock and because we have such a large debt base, uh, that was actually turned out to be pretty good. It, as you mentioned, it actually decreased the real value of our debt. However, uh, this is only going to be good if the, the market, the public continue to believe that inflation is going to go back under control to, to where the Fed wants it to be. Otherwise, if um, the market begins to think that inflation is going to stay high, then we can lead into those uh, into the situation you described where the government would have to continue to borrow at higher rates and uh, potentially that would be more inflationary. So it's really important right now that uh, the government get things under control so we don't go into that situation. Just to be clear that this is, you, you, can't, you can't have a policy of, of basically doing nothing, you know, of inflating away your fiscal deficits, right? I mean, that can't be the policy and you certainly don't want a reputation for that. <laughs> certain countries have a reputation for that. Uh, certain country, countries ha don't have a reputation for that. 
And if you have read, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with the work of Ken Rogoff and Carmen Reinhardt on, on debt sustainability. And you know, the puzzle in that, the, the puzzle that they talk about is, well, why is it some countries can have a very high level of debt to GDP and, and we don't get a debt default or people that there's not a lot of inflation and other countries have a lot of inflation at relatively low uh, debt. And, and you know, I think if you look at the structures of the economies and, and, and in my view, again, this issue of the development of the domestic debt, debt market uh, has a lot to say, but also about the reputation of the fiscal authorities, uh, whether they will be uh, relatively responsible, right? But certainly, yes, you can't go into, you, 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 can't, you can't have a, have a policy uh, of saying, well, yeah, we're going to run a bigger deficit this year and well, inflation will take care of it. Because then inflation will, will defeat you, right? Inflation will, will rise faster than, than you can spend. I mean, that's, that's how you get into hyperinflation. But also the debt has decreased in, in, I guess, market value a lot. And Peter, you've done some new work about what implications that might have, especially since the central bank has been one of the largest purchasers on, uh, of securities over the past decade. The Fed, as we've just realized through their most recently filed annual statements, they have an unrealized loss of about a trillion dollars on their balance sheet. So what does your work suggest of any impacts if any, that these unrealized losses have, and what kind of, um, I guess, what kind of, do they matter at all? So this this goes back to you know this this work I did in the eighties and nineties. This thing that do central banks need capital? Uh, it's somewhat complicated again, but it's 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 actually similar to the fiscal dimension if you consolidate the the, the central bank and the treasury and say is the government credible is the central bank credible and what is the nature of these losses uh, it matters if you have a loss because you effectively did helicopter money um, that's one kind of loss uh, this this kind of loss is a different sort of loss um, but I would say I I think or I'm very supportive of the of the balance sheet expansion that happened after the global financial crisis, particularly the, in the mortgage-backed security area. Um, uh, you know, I could go into that if, if, if you want, but I think the mortgage market was in, I, I mean, the housing market was in, basically in free fall coming into, the, into 2008, 2009. Um, house shelter, the shelter component of CPI went into deflation in 2009, uh, 2010. And we also had mortgage rates were not that low in terms of when 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 you have deflation or zero inflation, a five percent mortgage rate might sound like it's not very high to old people like me, but uh, you know it's a five percent real when you have zero percent inflation. Um, so what? So I, I was in favor of that, but I really felt that the Fed should have shrunk the balance sheet sooner and, and much more dramatically than it did. I'm afraid uh, there, there was a kind of lackluster attempt to shrink the balance sheet briefly, say in- Before 2020, 2020 or in 2021 or? Before, well before 2020. Uh, so it could have started 2013, 2014 in my mind. Uh, it expanded uh, again around that time. Then there was again, like a half hour effort to let the balance sheet roll off in about 20, 
2017. Um, it, it really didn't get too far. And then 2020, we had this huge, uh, enormous uh, increase. So what I'm saying is, even if you, even if you think the increase since, let's call it the COVID increase in 2020, 2021, and continued into, into 2022, was justified, you could have been starting at a much lower base, right? You could have had a much lower portfolio of mortgage-backed securities and treasuries entering in. So your losses, and, and the number is, and this is the number, the increase in unrealized losses during 2022, it's $1.2 trillion. Okay, it's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. About 800 billion were the losses on the treasury portfolio, 400 billion on the mortgage-backed security portfolio. And basically what I'm saying is those could have been, those could have been lower if you had shrunk the balance sheet coming into 2020. Um, then, then in terms of what happened during COVID, I, I think what, what was done in this, in March and April uh, had to be done. Uh, you know, it's, it, in terms of the, the Fed's actions to help the Treasury finance, uh, finance the future spending. I mean, this, no one knew what was going on. And it's very interesting, by the way, to, uh, to, to, to note that uh, the Treasury's balance at the Fed reached almost $2 trillion uh, during the COVID crisis. So what does that mean? That the Treasury was issuing a lot of debt, but it, it wasn't actually spending the money yet. And so it was, was building up a huge, huge deposit uh, at the Fed. So, so that I think was, you know, that the Fed, in a sense, provided outright monetary finance. I know legally, yes, no, that's not right. Peter, you're lying, whatever. That's effectively what happened. Uh, we, you know, as an economist, I'm saying this is what happened. And the Fed had to do that. Okay, it had, had to do that. Um, but it wasn't. It wasn't that the government, the money was going out the door. It was the government was getting ready. You remember we postponed the uh, tax dates and all. So the, the Treasury really needed that money quickly. It didn't know how much it would need, and markets were in trouble. So uh, completely okay with that. In the mortgage market, okay, it takes a while to originate a mortgage, package it, sell it as an MBS. That market, that might take 60 days. The Fed entered that market for the two months, basically bought every mortgage in the United States that was originated those two months. It's true, okay, it's true. Yeah. Um, now, so so that's fine. What happened after that uh, was a way overkill, in my opinion. And and again, I'm not I'm not trying to be a Monday morning quarterback. I've been talking about this since 2014, 2015. The Fed should shrink the balance sheet. This, you know, we have to have some sort of we have to have some sort of governance structure that puts pressure on that entity to shrink the balance sheet when it doesn't need to. And I think we've all, if we've watched, you know, the Fed guy has watched this over time, Joseph. <laughs> it just seems to me that, you know, the original increase was this is temporary. We're going to get it back down to as, as soon as we can. The amount that you know we're going to shrink it to the to, to where it was before, then it then it kind of jumped up again and became well we're going to 
shrink it, but maybe not right now and not back to where it was, but where it needs to be now. And it keeps just getting ratcheting up and up and up. And, you know, maybe, maybe from a, you know, certain perspective at the high level management, it's like, well, you know, why should be in a rush to give away this, this power, this tool that we have, that's, that's so wonderful. So, so there's not pressure like there would be on the, on the treasury, right? Uh, if the treasury were sort of doing a debt operation or whatever, issuing, issuing short-term debt to buy back long-term debt, you know, the treasury eventually runs into the debt limit and it has to, you know, it's, it's, it's curtailed. There, there's some mechanism to, to curtail that. And the Fed, because of its independence, basically can buy every MBS in, in the world, right? Every and, treasury in the world. And, and and to your point, it really didn't make sense in 2021. It wasn't like uh, 2009 when we had a real crisis in housing. In 2021, uh, house prices were going up year over year, about 20%. So there's a right. tremendous, tremendous boom in, in house prices. There's really no need for there to be additional stimulus. So um, it really a huge part of the Fed's accumulation of MVS during that period was the reinvestment of prepayments on mortgages. Okay. So uh, in, in at the end of 2021, 44% of the Fed's MVS holdings were issued in 2021. Okay. And I think it was, uh, I have the number, but it's it's some amazing amount of the Fed's portfolio have coupons of 2.5% or less. Okay. So, so what happened? Well, people reacted. The Fed, interest rates came way, way down and people refinanced the mortgages. They prepaid hundreds of billions of dollars on the mortgages that the Fed was holding, including other mortgages, but talking about the Fed's holdings. And so the Fed, bought new mortgages, like reinvested and they, and that. They, and they got new mortgages. They had, you know, consumers had mortgage at 5%, rates collapsed to zero. A more, you could get a mortgage at 2.9%, 3%. Uh, so that people paid back the 5% mortgage. So the Fed got paid back on that, but then they borrowed at 2.9%. And then that got put into a new mortgage-backed security in 2021. And then the Fed bought that. That's what you're saying. Absolutely. And now, now when interest rates go up, oh, wow, that mortgage-backed security plummets in value like any regular bond, but also because the duration of the bond goes way up because Jack, you've figured it out. Who, who, who in their right mind today is going to prepay their mortgage that they got at two and a half or three percent when rates are, are six or five or four. So basically that, that was a double whammy on anyone holding MBS. But the, the Fed, in, in my view, because of the target, the target was to accumulate mortgages on the balance sheet by say 40 billion a month. So that basically put the operational people kind of tied their hands. Anybody who wanted to come in and prepay the Fed's mortgages, they would refinance, you know, so to speak. And on top of that, the Fed had to buy more mortgages. So I think that I think that's kind of a signal that should have been a signal wait a minute, the mortgage market really, really doesn't need to, need this. I mean, the more I looked into it, the more irritated I got about the MBS purchases in, in particular, because effectively the Fed opened the, opened the, you know, the shop window and said, anybody, you know, wants to come in and refinance at two and a half, 
or three percent, three and a half percent, I'm here. I'm going to I'm going to buy that mortgage, um, and basically that's the four hundred billion dollar loss last year, and that's a loss that unlike with the treasuries, so the Fed lost 800 billion on the fall in its value of the treasuries. Well, you know, the treasury made an $800 billion gain, right? Yes. So they kind of narrow it out. I mean, it's it, they kind of cancel each other out from that short view. But when you think about it, so so who, who made the gain on the mortgage-backed securities? Well, it's the people who got the, got the mortgages. Yes. And if you look at the demographics of that population, they are homeowners who are more wealthy, have higher income than renters. They are also uh, more, uh, you know, again, who, who is the subset of homeowners during the COVID crisis who could refinance. Okay, so it's not going to be the poor person who's out of, you know, out of work or whatever. I don't think they were being received with open arms to refinance their mortgages. So if you look at the data, you know, it's very clear that there was a transfer of, of wealth, let's call it, from the, the taxpayers in the sense of these losses on our on the mortgage-backed securities that, that, that the Fed is holding. And, and the homeowners, and Joseph said yes, so it prompted uh, uh, two, over two years of house price inflation, I think at 17% a year, something like that. And now we're seeing in this CPI data, uh, I mean, the housing market was in good shape before that, and it, it, it's really kind of accelerated. And we're seeing, um, you know, rents going up. So the latest CPI number, the cost of renting a primary residence was rising at 8.8%. And again, who are the renters in America? By far, they are, uh, you know, the poor, poor part of the population, people without you know, without assets and so on. Not everyone, of course, but right. if you look at the demographics, it's very clear who is paying the price for, you know, in terms of that inflationary, like who's who's bearing the burden of the inflation. It's right. not the homeowners, you know, house prices have gone up. Hey there, sorry to interrupt. A lot of Forward Guidance listeners are not into crypto. If that's you, please skip ahead, get back to the interview. Some Forward Guidance listeners are into crypto, some own crypto, a smaller percentage owning lots of crypto, and a much smaller percentage work at crypto hedge funds. If you're in those latter two categories, BlockWorks Research might be a good fit for you. BlockWorks Research is a research and data platform that analyzes governance, tokenomics, and models of interesting crypto projects, including new protocols. There's a lot of edge that can be gained from reading these reports. You can check out a sample report at www.blockworksresearch.com research and hit the free report toggle. If that is of interest, full subscriptions can be purchased at www.blockworksresearch.com sign dash up. You can also get 10% off using the discount code guidance10. Thanks, and let's get back to the interview. So the, a lot of the what was on Silicon Valley Bank's balance sheet, the bank that collapsed a little over two weeks ago was agency mortgage-backed securities, very similar, if not the same, to the assets that the Federal Reserve bought. So it's interesting right. that despite the Federal Reserve taking on so many of the losses of rising interest rates for itself, 
it's like, don't worry, I got it. Uh, so, you know, there were still you know many casualties in the private sector, not many, but you know some significant casualties in, in, the, in the private sector. And I'll, Peter, you raise a really interesting point about the losses are someone else's gain. You know, with if the U.S. government runs a half a trillion dollar deficit, that's a gain for the private sector because the private sector gets to receive half a billion more that it or half a trillion more that it pays in, in taxes. So. Uh, the losses of the Federal Reserve that are unrealized losses, you know, unlike some commercial banks, there's never going to be a run on the Federal Reserve. Or, you know, if we do, we're jo- jo- Joseph, you know, we're, we're shutting down the podcast. Right. Um, but so the losses are, are were the gainers of the homeowners. And in some cases, the gains of the commercial banks who didn't have to hold them on. I mean, it would have been way worse maybe on the commercial bank, bank side. But Joseph, what does it mean for the Federal Reserve to have a trillion dollar unrealized loss that it will mark as a you know, when, when, when Peter is saying, oh, uh, it's a drain on the taxpayers, it's the taxpayers loss to give to these, you know, mostly affluent people who were able to refinance at, at 2.9% in 2020. How is it that the taxpayers loss? I mean, who, who, when the Federal Reserve loses money or makes money, how does that even, who, who is it? Like, who is the Federal Reserve, you know, Joseph? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, I, I can understand in treasuries, like Peter mentioned, someone's uh, Fed is losing treasury gains, so all in all, it, it's not that big of a difference. But when it comes to things like mortgages, there is a distributional impact because, as Peter mentioned, uh, you, you are basically subsidizing some of the some of the people who are able to get mortgages and are wealthy enough to own houses, and that's basically subsidized by 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 the public sector. And there's really there wasn't really any reason for that. So. Uh, I think it makes no sense for um, for the government to to have have done this. I I agree completely with Peter. Can you tie it together, uh, Peter? Where, you know, when Fed Chair Jay Powell goes before Congress, or let's say when he goes to a, a press conference, someone maybe from a conservative press asks, "What do you think about the you know Biden administration spending all this money?" And you know, Fed Chair Powell expectedly says, "That's not my job. I don't concern myself. I don't make a comment on fiscal matters." That is what we see, what the, the public sees. But you tie that together with your statement about how monetary authority really can help the fiscal authority and that during 2020, there was, in your words, a, a monetization of, of debt. Sort of, Which picture is accurate or, and could they be um, compatible in some way? I, I think if we come back to the fiscal theory of the price level, um, people don't think of that I would say as a fiscal dominance in the, in, in the same way as, as the uh, central bank being forced to print money, sort of fiscal dominance. Um, so I think the fiscal theory basically is pointing to the importance of future fiscal deficits, the, the government's operations uh, in, in, a, in a pretty long-term uh, sense right, whether you have a credible government overall. In other words, you will allow, the the way some, so I've I've talked a lot about this, you know, in 35 years. The way I've defined central bank independence is the central bank is independent if it can raise interest rates when the government doesn't want it to raise interest rates. And the answer, the the sort of the footnote to that is, and governments never want the central bank raise interest <laughs> rates because they're the big they're a big borrower, right? They don't want the rates to go up. So basically, in my mind, fiscal dominance, if, if we really looked at it, you know, away from the models, which are quite extreme, is to say that the, 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 the central bank does not 
do what it thinks it's right in terms of raising rates because of either direct kind of political pressure because of the impact on the budget, let's say, um, or because the, the government is in danger of getting into an unsustainably high, uh, you know, debt, death, debt, debt, death spiral. In other words, you know, real interest rates are going to be too high. So they basically give in and say, okay, a little bit of inflation is better than, you know, basically the snowball effect. So I, I think uh, maybe there's a better term. I don't have it for fiscal dominance or fiscal influence. So if, if you ask me again, all of my experience says in many, many countries, you really have to be, you know, have a responsible government in place but you have an independent institution and the rules are the government doesn't criticize us, doesn't put us under political pressure. So we don't criticize the government and we don't criticize, uh, you know, the, the, the government of officials. Um, and that's kind of the rules. And I, I think that makes sense to a certain extent. Okay. But then we get into this quasi-fiscal, what I, what I call the quasi-fiscal. And the question is, can the fiscal authorities, I would say, legitimately question these losses on the mortgage-backed security portfolio? Because, you know, this is a, something the government could have done. And in fact, the U.S. government, still under the Bush administration in 2008, actually had a program where the Treasury bought agency debt and agency mortgage-backed securities. And, and when I talk about governance structures, I think this is a very important example. So basically the treasury was doing what the Fed later did, but what was the difference? The treasury or the, the government had to pass a law. Mm -hmm. There was political heat by the opposition when they passed the law. It's called the Housing Support Act of 2008, something like that, number one. Number two, of course, the, uh, amount that the treasury was allowed to do was specified in the law. It wasn't an open-ended thing. And of course, Congress had to authorize uh, the spending. This is the legal framework in the US for government spending. And to, to end this part of that story, in, when the debt ceiling started to bind in 2010, 2011, under the Obama administration, do you know what happened? The treasury auctioned off these mortgage-backed securities and debt. So if you say, oh, it's impossible to sell them. Well, I'm sorry, the debt limit happened. So the Fed, the Treasury said, well, I need to sell these assets, these private assets, take the cash uh, and use it, you know, to, to, to spend because I can't issue more debt or to buy back debt. So that's an example of, you know, there's one governance structure to do that called the fiscal structure to provide, you know, assistance to the mortgage market. I'm not making it up. It was actually employed. And those, those assets disappeared from the, from the federal government's balance sheet because of the debt ceiling, I would say. Right. Overall, I don't think the debt ceiling is a good thing, but it had its purpose for this case. It, it forced, forced yeah, the government to do something. To Peter's point, so... <clears throat> This action by the central bank, by the Fed, to 
purchase mortgage-backed securities had fiscal implications, and so it made more sense for that to fall under uh, the elected government for, for more of an accountability framework, as Peter is suggesting. But right now, something else new is also happening, is that the Fed has tremendous amounts of, I guess, a huge balance sheet, and now it's also paying interest on it at, at very high rates. Now, remember, before the great financial crisis, the Fed had a very small balance sheet, and it really didn't matter what they were paying on interest. But now they have a balance sheet of a few trillion. And as interest rates go to 5% or more, that, that actually has pretty big fiscal implications as well, right? You're, you're, you're giving money to the banking sector and uh, people who park money at the Fed, let's say the money market funds. Does that mean we have to rethink how we, how we actually conduct monetary policy in this way since it's becoming more like fiscal policy? Well, that, that's a great question, Joseph. But I, I was go back to so let's say the uh, Treasury's, uh, the Federal Reserve's unrealized losses. I think Joseph or Peter, you said over a trillion dollars. Let's make it ten trillion dollars. What is the limit to how much pain the the Federal Reserve can realize? But if it never has to realize it, it can always just lower rates and then you know make it back on a deferred asset. And yes, I guess the proceeds to the Treasury it will take a long time to fill fill that hole. But yeah, uh, Peter, I just want to, yeah, expanding on, on Joseph's question, a $10 trillion, a, a $1 trillion unrealized loss on the Fed, why not $10 trillion? So I think that's very important to ask that question, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why. So in my career, as, as I think I mentioned, I studied this issue of central bank capital, central bank equity, central bank quasi-fiscal losses. And there, if, if you Google you know, my name, central bank, capital, uh, you'll come up with a number of papers that I've written or co-authored. And there is no question that there are countries that cannot have a low rate of inflation and a severely negative central bank balance sheet. Okay? So, you know, I could list a dozen countries in the 1980s that fell into that category. So what do I mean by that? And coming back to, you know, Milton Friedman and, and so on, this idea of the government printing money, if, how, how does the central bank uh, monetize its losses? Or it, it can't raise taxes, right? Uh, it can't cut spending. It's got to, basically, it has a $10 trillion debt. If it's a 5%, you know, whatever, there's a flow that it's got to be paying interest on that debt. And by the way, there are lots and lots of countries that have decades of experience managing central bank debt, right? Securitized central bank debt. Uh, so I've written, I've, I've done a lot of work on that. That, that, that work isn't in the public domain, but about uh, restructuring central bank's balance sheet because coming back to that period where there were no, there was no domestic debt market in emerging market countries and you had a crisis, Latin American debt crisis, the Asian crisis the central bank absorbs some of the money that it created by issuing its own debt out of thin air, right, in domestic currency. So there, I have dozens of cases of central banks that have been heavily indebted, okay? So the answer to your question is there is a tipping point for every country, and the tipping point is can you finance the central bank's losses at a low rate of inflation, okay? So some of them, it's absolutely not true. Uh, now, uh, it, it's, it's uh, if I could say it's a nonlinear relationship in the empirics, I have a paper on that. So now we're looking at the Fed, okay? So 
in 2009, I issued a working paper and I did a little stress test of the Fed's balance sheet. Okay. Uh, this was before the Fed did publish their own stress test. And basically my point was, even in a really bad scenario at that time with that balance sheet, right? This was the GF, this was the crisis balance sheet before it expanded, okay? Um, so losses there are not a problem for the Fed because it can, it, there's a big demand for physical currency. There's a big demand for US government debt. And the irony in, in the whole you know, GFC was that although it originated in the US, the best asset class return in I think 2009, 2010 was US government securities, right? Mm. So any other country, if the crisis, you know, there's a crisis in, in Mexico, right? The, the Mexican value of the debt goes down and people don't want Mexican pesos, right? I mean, it's, it's very counterintuitive, but in the US, you know, there's global crisis, so people rush and they're ready to finance, you know, they, they're ready to finance the uh, treasury, they're ready to finance, hold the Fed, hold the Fed obligations. So basically, if, if you were looking at the question, you know, 1 trillion, 10 trillion, I don't think it's, it's not so much, you know, realized, unrealized, it's really the issue of how is that finance? And as Joseph was saying, you know, basically the Fed is now running cash losses. It started running cash losses in the last quarter, right? So it's paying five, well, eventually probably be paying 5% on its uh, repo facility on all the deposits. And it's not getting the, uh, uh, you know, the coupons, the payments on the mortgage-backed securities and, and from the treasury. So it's essentially going to have to print, you know, what we would call printing money uh, to pay for those losses. Now, it's, it's in a sense issuing a security, which is an overnight deposit at the Fed and paying interest. So then I would say the question becomes, at, at what point does that, cash flow imbalance um, get to a situation where people say the Fed has to inflate away its own debt. Right. And so I was under the impression that all of the Federal Reserve's liabilities were pretty much, to use Stephanie Kelton's terms, green dollars, overnight securities, and but you were saying that some central banks actually had you know, yellow dollars. They issued their own securities, and then those securities were packaged and securitized. I'm fascinated by that, Peter. I'd love to have you back on Forward Guidance. And I want to check out your paper, and we'll, we'll leave a link in the description so, so people can check it out. But um, Peter, before I turn to Joseph, who could sort of you know, s summarize all this for us, are you saying that the real limitation on the amount of losses the Federal Reserve can take, realized or unrealized, is inflation? It's, it's basically, let, let's come back again to the physical theory. I hate to keep doing that, but in the sense, and, and I think uh, Stephanie would, has also this perspective. So you consolidate the Fed in, into the treasury, okay? And then that combined unit is issuing debt to finance its, its deficits. And can it, can it uh, sustain that you know, given debt level in a non-inflationary way? Mm -hmm. okay. And that's a that's kind of an issue about the real rate of growth and the real rate of uh, you know interest and so on. And if it can't, there will be more inflation maybe than than we would like. But 
I think in the U.S., you know, we're very, very far away from from hyperinflation or getting getting so so out of control. And I think it's also very important to 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 consider why I think from a, from a you know coldly analytical empirical data standpoint, the COVID crisis was what people tried to model, you know, in in in, um, in theory. It's like a surprise shock. It's very difficult, right, to to have something like this. And I think, in some sense, you know, COVID was literally, you know, it came out of nowhere, and it has a huge fiscal cost. And I, I think, you know, in terms of being able to draw lessons from it, it's very important. But I think that's different than looking at the sort of steady state uh, relationships. You see what I'm saying? This was. Yeah. To me, it was like, were there shock absorbers in place to handle this in a non-inflationary way? And I would say, again, talking about all these uh, emerging market countries, yes, they had inflation. Yes, the U.S. had inflation, but you know, I, I think it was pretty decent. You know, it was it was a good it was a good upturn. Right. Yeah. Uh, but if if a country were to have repeated shocks the size of COVID. You know, that's that's when you then you would run into this. You you would eventually run into the problem, I guess, is what I'm saying. So if COVID had been a ten trillion dollar shock, you know, I think I think we we could have. Uh, well, sorry, if if the losses had been ten trillion dollars, I'd have to know, you know, how we got there. <laughs> right, um, right. It's 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 path dependent. That's that's really interesting. Um, th- thank you, Peter. So, sure. Joseph, we, we, over the course of this interview, we've mentioned many excellent books. I would be remiss if I didn't include Central Banking 101, which is the you know, excellent book that you have behind you on, on your wall, of course, written by you. you know, uh, uh, Joseph, Peter an ext- is an extremely uh, brilliant person. So this has kind of been Central Banking 202 or Central Banking 303. Could you sort of bridge the gap uh, and help me and maybe our audience understand could you summarize uh, the fiscal theory of the, of the price level and sort of give us a, a takeaway from the from this conversation? Yeah, I, I think I think Peter has a joke. Oftentimes, he mentions at the IMF that you know the the nickname was it's mostly fisco. So when we think about inflation over the part over the over the time, it, it's not just about monetary policy and it's not just about central bank's balance sheet, but we also have to f- focus on uh, what the fiscal authorities are doing. So. What's the government debt, for example? How much are we spending? So I think that's that's a really important lens to understand the world because over the past few years, we've seen this huge jump in fiscal spending and also a huge jump in the price level. And if we look at current government estimates of what the fiscal spending will be for the coming years, it's also going to be very high. So this additional lens, rather than just a looking at money or looking at central bank actions things i think it's really useful and i really encourage everyone to read peter's work to learn more about it uh, it's been very helpful for me and, and I, I think there's i think it's a it's a very good theory in understanding the world yeah and i i want to ask the question real real quick we only got uh you know a, a minute or two left does this does this validate or challenge the thesis that Eventually, the Federal Reserve will have to pin yields at you know four or five percent because if yields went to seven percent, we would get into sort of a, a to a debt death spiral. So I, I think there are more clever ways to to solve that problem. I, I don't want to talk about them actually, but I, I think we won't come to that. In other words, uh, 
that's that's what we had during the Second World War and the Korean War. Uh, I think there are probably more clever ways to to solve that problem. Got it. Thank but, you, Joseph. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there are definitely more clever ways to solve that problem. Uh, I, sometimes I, I don't know if we have clever people running the banks, though. So, <laughs> so, uh, so it seems like a path of least resistance. It's already socialized in the marketplace, so to speak, being used by big central banks like Japan and Australia in the past. So I think that's a reasonable possibility. I, I think it's honestly, I would bet on it. There we go. Well, uh, everyone should check out um, not only your book, Joseph, Central Banking 101. You have a piece on on fedguy.com called Ameridollars, which is about related to this MMT adjacent theory of uh, you can only default on a currency that is you know, not the nas- national sovereign. Um, Peter's, Peter, people should check out all your papers, which we'll make sure to include a link in the description. Um, your work on centralbankarchaeology.com, uh, folks should check that out. And on Twitter, you are at Stellar underscore consult. Gentlemen, thank you so much. And thank you everyone for watching. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and BlockWorks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.